months, and uh, today I want to end by looking at what it means to be E-free. Uh, we've talked a lot about the church in general, what God's called for the church, but specifically, what, what does it mean to be E-free? The theme that we had had for this whole series came from Hebrews chapter 2, verse uh, 1. says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. God, we know that worship is a part of our life day in and day out, but it's so good to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ, to lift our voices in unison, to be able to praise and glorify you. And God, now as we come to looking into your word, we, we do ask that the Holy Spirit would be free to work in our hearts and minds, to encourage and to build up as needed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, uh, just for the fun of it, uh, I, I thought I'd see here, have you raise your hand if um, prior to coming to this church, if you would have classified yourself as not knowing anything or hardly anything about the Evangelical Free Church? How, how many of you would raise your hand? Oh, that's a bunch of you. Let's, let's kind of do it the uh, uh, other way around. Let's, let's do it this way. Um, how many of you, again, prior to coming to this church, were not only familiar with the Evangelical Free Church, but had actually attended another free church along the way? How many of you would put your hands in there? Yeah, that's a good half dozen of you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that's why... I wanted to spend this last message talking a little bit about what it means to be evangelical free, where that all came from. And so we're going to cover everything it means to be evangelical free church this morning in one message. Obviously, that's going to be an incredibly brief overview. But we're going to start with the name itself, Evangelical Free Church of America. Uh, the denomination started back in the 1950s. Actually, 1950 is when it started, uh, uh, the organization going on a little bit prior to that. And technically, the Evangelical Free Church is not a denomination. Uh, denomination uh, implies top-down authority and structure uh, with... Uh, we are what is known as an association that is made up of independent and autonomous uh, churches that choose to work together for the common good uh, of the gospel. And that's actually what brought them together back in, in 1950. In the first place, there was a whole bunch of these independent uh, little churches, and they got together because they realized that a whole lot more could be done and, and could be accomplished, especially in the area of missions, which was one of their primary uh, thoughts, if they cooperated together. And, and so uh, they said, you know, even though we want to maintain our independence, we see there's this big value in, in being uh, together, and so they wanted to work out a way to do that. And the first thing they did was hammer out a basic statement of faith. And during that process, their motto was unity in the essentials, charity in all else. 
we don't you know speak that way much nowadays too but they basically they wanted to say yeah there are certain things that we need to agree upon that we have to stand firm on that we have to say this is the way it is but in the other areas we want to show love and grace and there's a lot of areas when it comes to uh practice and and, and uh following god that that uh sincere bible believing christians may see a little bit differently and we want to show unity and grace in those areas. And so that was kind of their, their founding um, thought. Um, part of their agreement was that every single church would maintain its, its own autonomy. So unlike other denominations, I mean, you know, Wesleyan or, or Lutheran or some of those others, we do not have to pay uh, church dues to some specific hierarchy or organization. Now, we can choose to support like our district or our national staff in, in their things they're doing, but we don't have to. Uh, and they, uh, on their part, cannot just come into our church uh, without invitation. In fact, our, our district superintendent we've had here many times, Greg Fell, he cannot come in unless we invite him. Um, uh, they don't have the authority over us. They can offer help. They can offer suggestions. They can offer resources. But each church maintains its own autonomy. Then, in order to be an e-free church, uh, all of these individual churches had to agree on two basic things that would bind them together. One is they would affirm that basic statement of faith. Every single free church has the exact same statement of faith. And two, they would have to agree to the congregational form of government. And so that shows the basis. That's where they got the name evangelical free. In recent decades, uh, the term evangelical has been hijacked and vilified by the press and and political system and all that kind of stuff. And in many cases, the term evangelical has become uh, a, a derogatory term. Right, uh, it's become synonymous with uh, um, being a bigoted, intolerant, ignorant, middle-class white person. Basically, is the way it's 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 defined, and, and the picture of that being what evangelical means is so strong in some parts of the country that many of our e-free churches are are now picking names for their church that do not include the word evangelical, like like ours do. I I recently went to a a training conference out in Minneapolis, and there were 10 pastors there from 10 different evangelical free churches. And of those 10, only four had the name evangelical uh, as part of their official name of their church, like we, Southern Hills Evangelical Free Church, right? The others had names like Integrity Church or Mountain View Fellowship, River City Church, Grace Life Church, things like that. See, where they are ministering, the term evangelical would have been a barrier to the people that they're trying to reach. Now, it does include that kind of information in their official church documents and in literature and stuff like that. It does state, yes, we're an evangelical free church, but they are hoping that by the time these people get around to examining their their church literature and documents, they would have already built enough of a relationship with them that they could explain, here's what this term evangelical really means, not what the press tries to tell you it means. Uh, back in the 1950s when they chose the name, uh, the term evangelical had a mostly good connotation in, in the public and in the culture. And basically what it means is that we believe the Bible and are focused on the gospel. 
fact, if you wonder where the term evangelical came from, it comes from the Greek word for gospel, evangel. And that's where we get, you know, evangelize, evangelical, that type of thing. Um, as a group, those original churches said, yeah, that's who we are. We're, we're, we're Bible-centered, focused on the gospel. We're evangelistic. We're evangelical. So that's where that part of the name came from. But it was also important for them to be free. And, and if you want to, uh, to dive into the entire history uh, of the free church, you'll find out why that was such a big deal to them to, to be free. But we don't have time for that this morning. Just suffice it to say what they wanted to do was avoid a, a hierarchy that could control the local church. They wanted to maintain the decision-making power within the body of believers in, in each local congregation. I mean, why should some pencil-pushing ecclesiastical executive determine who the pastor should be uh, of our local church, right? Or, or what we can and can't do in terms of ministries and that type of thing. So, so free became a part of the name. They wanted to maintain it. And then it, it was agreed upon that uh, to be part of the Association of Evangelical Free Churches, you would be congregational in your form of government. Um, there's lots of different church forms of government out there, and, and it's not a right or wrong issue. It's not like the Bible teaches this is the way a church has to uh, offer its government. In fact, if you read your, your New Testament and talk about church, you'll find out that the New Testament talks a great deal about the functions of the church, and very little to nothing in terms of the form. The functions are what are important to God. The form, well, that's just a man-made plan for how you're going to carry it out. It's amazing to me how many people, how many churches can really get hung up on the form and forget it's about the function, right? Man, I, I remember one time in a church I was going to years ago, they wanted to change the time of the service from 11 o'clock You'd have thought World War III was going to break out. Really? Is it that big of a deal to change from 11 to 10.30 or some, whatever it was, some other thing? But we, we get hung up on forms. Okay, so the form of the government isn't a big thing. Uh, but the leaders of, the, uh, of those early churches, they thought the congregational form of government would be the best in terms of helping maintain that local autonomy uh, and others. And they did think that it had good biblical support for that type of thing as well. In Acts chapter 15, they, you, they have recorded for us what you might call the very first uh, official church council, which was held to decide an important doctrinal and, and, and Christian practice um, matter. And, and Paul and Barnabas were sent down to Jerusalem to bring this matter up for a decision. And Acts 15.4 says this, When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by who? By the church, the whole church, and the apostles and the elders. Uh, the whole church was uh, officially involved in that. Now, as you would expect, it was the elders and the apostles, the leaders of the church that debated this doctrinal issue and, and came to a consensus and agreement on that. But when they sent that out to the, all the rest of the churches, they didn't send it out just on their own authority. Hey, here's what we're telling you guys to do. Uh, it was sent out by the whole church. Again, look at verse 22. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. To do this now again that doesn't 
dictate or mandate any type of form of government as you read through that or anything like that, but it at least does lend support to the idea of congregationalism. And congregationalism does not mean that every decision has to be made by the entire body of the church. That would be impractical and, and, and uh, very limiting. Instead, what it means is that each local congregation can recognize and affirm leaders within their own um, congregation to take care of the bulk of the decision-making and, and those types of things. But that the power for major decisions, such as who to hire as a pastor, um, that would be um, held by the congregation itself. And, and what that really does is it affirms a belief that they had of the priesthood of all believers, that, that every believer is a part of the priesthood. First uh, Peter 2.9 describes every individual Christian this way, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who you are as an individual. And and because of that, because that's true, there is no need for some ecclesiastical hierarchy of priests and bishops and whoever else over the top of you. You have direct access to God. You can hear from God. You can be led by God just as much as any other believer. And and so all the believers working together... um, is what they felt provided the best local congregation a form of government. So to be E-free, you, you must be congregational, but it also means uh, that you have to um, agree to a basic statement of faith. And, and this was done for the spiritual safety and protection uh, of the individual churches. You know, one of the weaknesses of being independent and autonomous is that you can end up in the company of a whole bunch of kooks, right? Um, Because you can have, a, a person could maintain or hold all kinds of absolutely crazy teachings and still call themselves a church, right? I mean, one example of that would be Oberon Zell Ravenheart and his wife, Morning Glory. They started a church called the Church of All Worlds in 1962. They based it on Robert Heinlein's book, Stranger in a Strange Land. They worshiped the earth, all kinds of gods and goddesses and a bunch of other different things, and they called themselves a church. If you're looking, you're new to, you know, the community and you look up in the yellow pages. Okay, that, that makes me really old. If you, if you go on the Internet and you're, and, and, uh, you're searching, you're, you're Googling churches in your community, that's going to pop up as a church. Here's something that's even worse than that, though. Kooks can start churches and claim they're Christian, right? As long as they maybe say the name Jesus somewhere in there. Now, that Jesus doesn't have to have any resemblance to the biblical Jesus whatsoever, right? Or as long as they say, oh, yeah, we use the Bible or any of that kind of stuff, they can call themselves Christian. 
matter how much they might take away from or add to the Bible. And so, uh, realizing this, those early church founders of the e Free Church said, yes, great being independent, and yet we want to protect ourselves from, from these types of things and also from a very strong movement of, of liberalism that was beginning to permeate the churches there where they were disregarding the Bible and sections of the Bible and this type of stuff. They wanted to differentiate themselves and, and protect themselves from that. So they said, you know, we, we have this statement of faith that we believe these, these are the essentials that need to be agreed upon. And the wording of that statement of faith has actually been kind of revised a couple of different times since the 1950s. The, the, the intent, the, the, the teaching of each uh, um, statement has not changed. Just the, just the wording to modernize it and, and uh, clarify it and that type of thing. Um, but what we have as an e-free church is 10 um, distinct statements of faith that you must agree to uh, to be part of the Evangelical Free Church. So in, our, in, in the last few minutes of today, I'm just going to run through those 10 real quick and say, here's what it is. This is what it means to be E-free. And, and the first thing that they said, man, we need to have an agreement on this in order to maintain essential unity is you've got to agree about who God is. And so the first statement is about God. Number one says this, and in every single one of the statements we leave with the, uh, begin with the phrase, we believe. That this is what we believe. This is what we are holding on to, to be free. And it says, we believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, having limitless knowledge and sovereign power. God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. That's, that's who God is. And, 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 you know, there are many groups out there claiming to be Christian that want to deny a lot of those basic truths about God. Uh, they want to deny the Trinity. But, you know, from the very beginning of the Bible, God has always referred to himself as one and yet plural. Right, right from the beginning, even in, in the book of Genesis, Genesis one twenty six, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Uh, and, and yet it starts with the unity, the oneness of God. And throughout the Bible, you can clearly see that uh, the attributes uh, of divinity were ascribed to God the Father, to Jesus Christ the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And yet the affirmation is always and consistently throughout the Bible that God is one. So how exactly does that work? I don't know. Okay? Uh, it's a mystery. But I'm pretty glad that my God is bigger than my finite, feeble understanding or explanation. The New Testament writers, even though they could not explain it either, were not the least bit hesitant to speak of the three equally, such as in the closing of, of 2 Corinthians when it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. They, they believed in the Trinity. 
But this statement about God, it also affirms his two great works in relation to human beings, right? God is creator and he is redeemer. That's who God is. And then it talks about his character. He's holy. He's perfect. He's eternal. He's loving. He's limitless in knowledge and in power. There's a, there's a popular theology out there right now. It's actually growing in popularity that goes by the name of open theism. And it basically says, you know what? God can't really know the future since humans have free will. And so he's just doing the best he can to kind of react to the circumstances uh, as they come up. We would deny that as an inadequate view of who God is. He is limitless in knowledge and power. Now, the second statement talks about the Bible. Uh, And and by the way, just, you know, because humans like to argue, there was great argument uh, as they started this, whether the statement about the Bible should come first or the statement about God should come first. It's kind of like the chicken and the egg, right? Because you can't have the Bible without God, so you've got to start with God. But we don't know anything about God without the Bible, so we need to start with the Bible. And you know, it was a big debate, but apparently they got it figured out. This, the second statement uh, talks about the Bible, and it says this. We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, though the word, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. The complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all it teaches, obeyed in all it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. So, a couple uh, important aspects about that highlight. First, God has spoken. That's what it says, right? The Bible is not man's ideas about God, but God's revelation about himself to man. And both the Old and the New Testament are Scripture and are important. It says that the Bible is the complete revelation of God's will for us. If someone comes along or some group comes along claiming to have additional uh, revelation, new revelation beyond what the Old and New Testament teaches, you can be confident that that's not from God. The Bible gives us His complete revelation. That's why we read, uh, as God inspired in the book of Revelation, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take his part away from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. The Bible is is all we need. It, it, It also says that Uh, And I like where it says this, that uh, every realm of human knowledge and endeavor is judged by the Bible, not the other way around, okay? We don't try to make the Bible fit into the current modern theories of of man and and the teachings of the world. Instead, all the knowledge of the world is judged by the Bible. And that's why that particular statement ends with that final applicational 
phrase or a sentence when it says that the Bible is to be believed in all it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Now, this does not mean that the that uh, the Bible is to be accepted with just what a lot of people accuse of blind faith. You just accept that and you don't. No, the Bible is uh, a book uh, of reasonableness and intelligence. It actually tells us test, test these things, think through them. But as they are, uh, you'll see that the Bible maintains uh, its clarity and authority. That third statement then talks about us as humans. It says, we believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. And only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Um, man did not come into existence through some slow evolutionary process. God created man and woman whole and complete. Adam and Eve uh, are not uh, characters in some parable, but literal, physical people. God created man good. But when they chose to sin, that sin was then passed on through all people, and so now every person is born sinful. So contrary to modern philosophy and psychology, which says that man is basically good. You've probably heard that somewhere along the line, right? Man is basically good. I believe in the goodness of man and all this kind of stuff you hear. It's in about every other Disney movie and that kind of stuff too, you know. Uh, man is basically good. And I like Disney movies. I'm not putting them down, by the way. I'm just saying we've got to be careful what, what, uh, and understand what we're seeing uh, when, we, when we do these things. Man is not basically good and, and corrupted by his environment. Man is corrupt and therefore ruins his environment, right? I mean... That is the way it is. We start with corrupted hearts. And that corruption, that, that sin, separates us from God. And the default position of every human being is being under the wrath of God. And it's only through the saving work of Jesus Christ that that can change, which then immediately leads to the fourth statement about Jesus Christ, which says, We believe. That Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. That's who Jesus Christ is. And any Jesus that is presented to you that falls short in any of those areas is not the biblical Jesus, right? We, we need to understand that. Just because a person says they believe in Jesus, you, you need to find out who, who, what's the Jesus they believe in. Um, you can go to the Baha'i faith, and they believe in Jesus as some spiritual overlord and and you know the jesus can be very different depending on what group you're going to these are the fundamentals about him that need to be held to and and, and if you deny any of those aspects 
of Christ, well, that would place a person outside the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity. Jesus saves, but it's the Jesus of the Bible who saves, not the Jesus of man's invention. The next statement talks about the work of Christ, how it is he saves on, on, on behalf of us for salvation. It says, we believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only grounds for salvation. Jesus died for us. He, he took the punishment of death that we deserved upon himself. And only by accepting that sacrifice for your sins can you be forgiven and saved. There is no other path to salvation. As 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Christianity does not teach that it is a path to God. It does not teach that there is some nebulous definition of God at the center of some hub and you start out on the rim and you can take whatever path you want to that center. It teaches that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And after that statement comes a statement about the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit in all that he does glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He convicts the world of its guilt. He regenerates sinners and in him they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. He also indwells, illuminates, guides, equips and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. It's the Holy Spirit who practically applies the work of Jesus Christ in your life. We are um, fully resourced for all we need to live the Christian life because of the Holy Spirit's work in you. That, that it's the Holy Spirit that, that, that regenerates you, makes you a believer, brings you into the body of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that makes you able to live a life of godliness. And that leads to then the statement of the church. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. And okay, so that talks a lot about the church. And we've been talking about the church the last several weeks, so I'm not really going to say much more on this. I believe those are pretty self-explanatory uh, comments. So then the next statement then covers the fact that God has called us as a church, as a body of believers, and as individuals 
to live in a new and different way. It says, we believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion towards the poor, justice for the oppressed. With God's word, the Spirit's power, and the fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat spiritual forces of evil in obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all peoples, always bearing witness to the gospel in word or deed. We are called to be a set-apart people, a different people, to live differently. You'll notice the two greatest commands as enunciated by Jesus are contained in that, right? To love God and, and to love others. But it also includes the two basic, the twofold mission of the church, to reach people and to teach them obedience. And we've looked at those things. But it also in that statement includes our responsibility as believer. And each and every one of us has that responsibility to live as the salt and the light, making an impact in our world and in our community for Jesus Christ. And the last two statements have to deal with the future. Statement 9 talks about the return of Christ. We believe in the personal, bodily, and premillennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ at a time known only to God, demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believers to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Okay, so when I was a younger pastor, uh, I had uh, all the answers figured out about all the end times issues. Okay, and and now, as I've gotten older, um, I still think I got all the answers. I, you know, I, I, like, I like where I've come down on that. But, but I've also realized that the Bible might not be quite as clear as we would like it to be about all the details and the timing uh, of Christ's return in the end. So you go back to that original philosophy as these guys were working on this statement of faith and the free church came into existence. It says, in the essentials, unity, charity, and all else. And the question really becomes, what is essential when it comes to the return of Christ? What, what, what is essential that we as believers must agree upon when it comes to the return of Christ? And, and, and the argument has put out that really the non-negotiable essential is the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back physically, in person, to receive us to himself. He's coming back. Now, the timing of all the events surrounding the return, there, there's some good energetic debates about that by sincere Bible-believing Christians. Several years ago, many years ago, this original statement included uh, the word pre-tribulational in it because, uh, you know, the timing of the rapture had, it was a big argument and fight that had, you know, everybody has to agree on that. And, and, and the, since that time, that's actually been taken out because they realized, you know what? You might not agree with me on the timing of the rapture, but that doesn't mean we're not both brothers and sisters in Christ, both saved and both sincerely following God. This year at at our national conference, they're having that same discussion and debate about the timing of the millennium. You know, do you have to agree on a specific millennial position in order to be a Bible-believing Christian in order to have fellowship with us. And, and I, have, I have some pretty strong views on what I believe 
is the timing of the millennium and, and these types of things for the end. But no, I don't believe that that's an essential matter. That's, that's not a matter of salvation. That's not a matter of Christian living. And so I would say it's, it's not an essential part that we have to have unity in, but rather one of those things that we can freely discuss as brothers and sisters in Christ as we move towards a better understanding of Jesus Christ and his return. The final statement talks about eternity. It says, We believe that God commands everyone, everywhere, to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heavens and new earth. To the praise of his glorious grace, amen. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And what we choose to do with Jesus Christ during our life here on earth determines our eternal destiny. And that's why it is so important for, for us to, to live for Christ and, and to, um, to make an impact in this world. We strive to be the kind of church that God's called us to be because Jesus Christ is coming back. People need to know that. And their eternity rests on what they decide about Jesus Christ. That, in a nutshell, is what it means to be E-free. Father God, I know that uh, a message like this can sometimes raise more questions than it answers, but God, we are thankful that your word gives clarity on on uh, these foundational truths of who you are and uh, what you have done for us and that we can agree on that and that we can live according to the power given us through Jesus Christ, through salvation, by the Holy Spirit to impact this world for Christ. So God, help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name.